0: This conference will now be recorded.
1: All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. As always, we appreciate you joining us. I'm Corey Worden. I'm currently the Professional Development Chair for AOHP, and I'm also the uh, Region 2 Director at this point. Um, So we appreciate everybody joining us. Today you're listening to the AOHP Caring for Healthcare Professionals podcast, and we've got a great episode. Today we're going to be talking about one of the topics that has just been a constant, um, I saying, unfortunately constant issue in the, in the healthcare safety and occupational health world for as long as needles and sharps have been something that's used in the healthcare workplace. And that's of course, needle sticks, sharps injuries, bloodborne pathogen exposures, and all of those different related issues. So it's been a constant pursuit for as long as healthcare has been a thing is how do we prevent and mitigate these situations? So today we got two fantastic subject matter experts with us. We got Dr. Amber Mitchell, who you all know from different podcasts and webinars. And then we have Dr. Nancy Yule, who's also been with us on several of our different uh, podcast episodes and also with the the National Conference um, back in 2020. So we're great grateful to have them both on here and we're gonna go ahead and get right into it so that I don't spend all the time talking when they should be so um to get us going if i could ask each of you for just a quick intro um dr mitchell why don't we start with you please sure thanks corey it's such a
0: pleasure to be back i always enjoy doing uh your podcasts and always find great reward in my aohp membership and activity so first thank you um i've been with you guys before and i've seen most of you at conferences and on webinars I do. I run a nonprofit called the International Safety Center, and our prized possession is EpiNet. We do uh, occupational surveillance for bloodborne exposures, needle stick, sharps injuries, and have since um, taken on ExpoStop for AOHP 2 So you know me from those things, most likely. Um, I also, during the pandemic, since I'm an occupational infectious disease epidemiologist, do quite a bit of federal contract work for. Um, the National Institutes for Environmental Health Sciences, the Worker Training Program for OSHA, and for a couple other federal contracts. But I've worked all over the place. I've worked in the federal sector starting my career as the National Bloodborne Pathogens Coordinator for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in Washington, D.C., which is my hometown. Um, I've worked in private sector for medical device companies, for startups, for academia. Um and I'm just so pleased to have had so many experiences and mm-hmm. to be with you here today to talk about something that's really important um to each of you and to me for my entire career.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and y'all definitely y'all definitely have a leading edge on, on these different situations with, with EpiNet and all the different work that you do. So that that's awesome. All right. Uh Dr. Yule, if we ask you for an intro, please.
2: Yes, thank you. I appreciate being here. I always appreciate the work AOHP does and and all the members contribute to the safety and well-being, particularly of nurses, which is my background. I spent a number of years in uh, nursing education, being faculty and dean at Houston Baptist University uh, School of Nursing and Allied Health. Uh, and then had the pleasure of working Memorial Hermann system, particularly Southwest hospitals, where I met Corey and enjoyed working with him as uh, the quality director for nursing, and um, did staff development there as well, and then finished my career as uh, campus president at Chamberlain University in Pearland, where I worked with a nursing program there and so we did spend uh, quite a bit of time developing nurses and nursing students with simulations and um, other educational programs to prevent sharp injuries and uh, promote safety among the workforce
1: all right awesome yeah definitely a just a great amount of fantastic work all right so with all that let's start at the beginning so we know that with any safety management process of course the first thing is the hazard and threat analysis so in this case of course you know the question is how do these different needles and sharps injuries appear you know how do they how do they manifest in the workplace so we know that of course by looking at the different devices that are used the different processes are used for and then we also know that we have a lot of data um including Dr. Mitchell's EpiNet data. So let's go ahead and start with that. Um, as far as how these things show up, um, Dr. Mitchell, you want to start, please?
0: Um, sure, yeah, as Corey mentioned, so for those that aren't familiar who might be listening for the first time, EpiNet is a surveillance system that's been in place since the early 1990s. It was created by my long-term, long-term mentor, Dr. Janine Jaeger from University of Virginia, and um, EpiNet has been capturing occupational exposures to blood body fluids so those are mucocutaneous exposures so exposures to the eyes nose mouth or non-intact skin Um, and whether people were wearing personal protective equipment or not at the time um, how the exposure occurred what professional group they were in And we also do um, needle stick and SHARP object injury incidents. So I'm actually looking at our 2021 data right now, which is the most recent full year that was released. And how those exposures show up for SHARPs mostly, as you would anticipate, um, are about half to physicians. And physician injuries are mostly occurring in operating rooms and surgical environments and then the other half to nurses, as nurses are mostly responsible for the bedside care of the actual patient. So the majority of those, let's just cover sharps injuries to start. Um, Suture injuries, number one, and those again are mostly physicians and mostly in the operating room and emergency department. Number two, hypodermic syringes, so disposable syringes, and we've seen this skyrocket with mass vaccination programs for Mm -hmm. COVID and for increasing obesity crisis, (laughs) meaning insulin injecting um, type two people with diabetes. So -hmm. those are the largest population of injuries among the nursing community, insulin syringes and uh, vaccinations. And then the third, it goes back to physician categories, which is mostly with um, scalpels, and I I dare say with scalpels that do not have sharps injury prevention features on them. So those are the the high level ones. Um, I will say for the mucocutaneous, by far and large, the most exposed professional group are nurses at the bedside. The majority of those exposures are happening to the eyes Um, and we can talk about it a little bit later. Even with the COVID pandemic going on, and with increased awareness about eye protection and face protection, we saw almost no increase from 2019 to 2020 to 2021 with improving face protection. We saw increasing improvements in surgical mask use but not in respirator use, not in eye protection, and not in face shields, which was surprising to us. So that's just our data um, from a snapshot on where we see things showing up.
1: Yeah, that's definitely interesting information and, and great, great analysis. It's always interesting, the like you said there, the fact that you know there's a there's a pandemic and there's all of these different safety protocols that are put into place and there's this heightened awareness as far as these hazards but um but but not as much of a um a a change in the actual use of the protection as as of course would would be good and then also also very interesting how that um the particular area and, and the processes in the, in the in the operating room is is always is always at the top of that list. I know that was definitely the case when I was in acute care as well. Um, and Dr. Yo, what are your thoughts on that? As far as where these things tend to appear?
2: Well, I I agree. You'd expect them in the environments where you have intense operations going on and probably some uh, expectation of efficiency of time. Uh, many of the surgeons in ORs have other cases coming after them, or they've been there for most of the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they're tired, they may be hurried. You certainly see that in emergency rooms and critical care environments. And during COVID, the intensity of that experience for healthcare workers, uh, including even lab and housekeeping, because they can also be involved in sharps injuries. Um, just the intensity of the experience, the rush that everybody had, because they had so many patients and staffing was very limited. I'm sure that contributed to an increase in just it happening out of tenseness and not staying aware of what the environment had, what the patient might be responding, or even to the safety features of the equipment that was there. So I can see why Mm -hmm. people maybe weren't wearing the mask and the eye shields when you've got 10 patients instead of a normal six and they all have pain and want pain medication at the same time um you know as a nurse that would make me very tense and so i'm not Mm -hmm. as likely to pay attention to uh, making sure the patient knows i'm coming at them with a needle Uh, they might move then and i end up getting stuck and in surgery as well i can see where physicians would be hurrying also um i would say during that time of covid we saw nursing students were not allowed in hospitals Mm -hmm. and so the training became essentially virtual and some of that may not have been as um, well conducted as face-to-face education can be and so we've got a whole group of new nurses coming out of the education system now who are not well trained or well skilled uh, in use of sharps and so Mm -hmm. um the, that's some of the issues I've seen over the past couple of years. Yeah, that,
1: that's very interesting. It, it it makes me think of the the many conversations I've had over the years where I, I've always said if I was independently wealthy, which I'm I'm absolutely not, but if I had you know like um, you know Bruce Wayne Batman money or uh, you know Iron Man Tony Stark Iron Man money. Then I would create a, um, a like a safety um, pr- like a safety um, simulation lab, you know, and mm-hmm. we would we would have it set up, you know, would have our um, would have our our simulated um, you know patient care unit room, and would have our simulated OR, and and we would walk through all these different scenarios, uh, like you said, including you know all the different use of all the all the different uses of sharps and the the, of course, the potentials for threats of violence and the potential for um, you know, airborne disease exposures and all these different scenarios and just get people immersed in that so that they'll really see it. Because um, I know there's definitely definitely been this big shift to the, the virtual world in the last mm-hmm. several years in particular, and that that does have um, un, unwanted effects on um, on the potential severity of these things or the, the perceived severity of these things those are Mm -hmm. definitely definitely great great insights we do corey i just
0: wanted to add you don't you don't need batman money we actually Mm -hmm. do we do it so um but Mm -hmm. given your choice of career paths you may never be rich just (laughs) that's right (laughs) you go into (laughs) occupational health or public health you are just destined for a life of no riches Except for the riches that we get from doing stuff like this. But um, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to remind viewers, our viewers, listeners, um, that there is an organization that one of my other longtime heroes, and she is a superhero, even though she's Mm -hmm. human, is June Fisher, who came out of University of San Francisco and San Francisco General Hospital, um, who created an institute, it's called the Training for Development of Innovative Control Technologies, or TDICT, the TDICT project. And she did run safety labs, especially among the surgical community with some surgeon um, leaders, surgical tech leaders, or nurse managers, and they did failure modes analysis for um, Mm -hmm. medical devices, especially for safety devices, and they would feed information back to medical device manufacturers but we do have um, a series of device safety device or sharps injury prevention device evaluation forms on um, our site. We now run TDICT for Dr. Fisher. Um, and so those are free to use. EpiNet and TDICT, they're all free mm-hmm. to use. Anybody can access. So just, just as a reminder, there are these evaluation safety device evaluation forms. Not the lab that comes with it anymore, but mm-hmm. um, you can create your own mini labs in your facilities during your. Uh, value mm-hmm. analysis committees or infection control or medical device committees, whatever they are.
2: Well, Dr. Mitchell, have any developed the uh, virtual simulations that, you you know, you put the goggles or glasses on and it's really in your head versus actual property?
0: So that is where the Batman money mm-hmm. needs to come yeah. in, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's right, A wonderful, yeah.
0: Wonderful, it's a wonderful idea where you don't need that the bricks and mortar space or to set aside some space because there are training facilities like it. I know San Diego has a surgical suite mock surgical suite training center. That is a brilliant idea. I'm wondering if it might be something that we could talk more about because I think it's great for every people you know people to see in their own heads how things are simulated, um, how they have to use their hands to do the 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 devices and actually I was just looking up you brought up a really good point about nursing students um I was just looking up our data we did have a slight increase in sharps injuries from nursing students from 2020 to 2021 so um thank oh. you for that really poignant um point of view because I was thinking I don't know if that's true or not and according to the data that could very well have come into play during oh, covid
2: Because uh, Mm -hmm. where I'm consulting right now, they had groups that had no actual in-person clinical experiences before they graduated. It was all stimulation. And uh, it's just not the same giving it to a a plastic arm as it is giving it to a real person. The plastic arm never moves. Absolutely. And there are companies that yeah. do simulations, healthcare simulations, and I know they're nursing simulations that are with the virtual equipment. And so I'm wondering if some of those companies might be something AOHP could collaborate with and create some of these scenarios.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a great point there. You're definitely definitely correct there is that you know the the mannequin is much less likely to um, have a you know a, an anxiety episode or mm-hmm. get upset and confrontational or or throw a fist or bite or um, any Spit. number of different variables. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's there's yeah, no we... real real blood coming out of the mannequin.
0: We've seen quite a few. Um, I was looking at our mucocutaneous data. We see quite a few from workplace violence, from spits and bites and scratches Mm -hmm. and um, all sorts of things that healthcare workers, especially those out in the field, first responders, paramedics, EMS, are extremely likely to have too. Um, one thing I wanted to mention additionally to simulation that we always hear among the surgical community, um, especially among both dermatologists and surgeons, because they're both using scalpels for, for fine cuts, is mm-hmm. that going from a stainless steel kind of heavy um, heavy handle to a plastic disposable safety scalpel is a very different feel. So yeah. from the surgical community, especially those using scalpels, mm-hmm. we hear that that the tactile, the heaviness of the stainless steel is what they're used to, what they've been training on. So they're hesitant to move to something that's plastic and disposable. So that's another reason I think it's important to do more simulations and to have medical device manufacturers work with us in the healthcare worker, safety, nursing, um, surgical space to help them Feedback information like that about moving from a non-safety to a safety device. What is compromised in that in that movement or that transition?
2: That's a good point. And yeah. Dr. Mitchell, have you do you know what percent of the ORs maybe are using the blunt surgical needles?
0: Um, so very small, and I could actually run that data, Corey, and and give it back to you, mm-hmm. and we can circulate it among the community um but mm-hmm. when you know i could pull data that's the benefit of having any institution that has epi they can pull device specific data and see whether was this injury with a suture needle, or a suture needle that had a sharp injury prevention feature or a safety mechanism or not and i would tell you almost across the board that suture injuries are not are from typical sutures that they're using for skin closure and have and this Corey, is one of your later questions about engineering controls but mm-hmm. it's perfect to bring yeah. it up now because yeah. there are engineering controls or safety technologies for skin closure like zipper closures like um, like adhesives like staples that substitute out that sutures but if you're constantly training for um, plastic surgery or dermatology or surgery to do the skin closure with a sharp sharp suture, the learning curve is very high for a different kind of technology. So that transition from a non-safety to safety in that learning curve, just like you mentioned with nursing students, is important to address um, so that a a, quote-unquote safety device isn't the one that's causing the injury because they're unfamiliar with it.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know just the that's that's something we always look at you know in those risk assessments as well as we want to make sure that when we implement a, a you know a safety protocol whether it's a piece of equipment or whether it's ppe or whatnot you know we're not actually creating another hazard so that that's a great point there um and the other thing i i, I noticed you mentioned a minute ago i was kind of put in the back of my head there was with the with the, um, the uh, EMS and um, first responders, there's, um... oh goodness. I'll have to edit that part, I just totally drew a blank. But either way, uh, definitely, there was something I was gonna say about first responders and I just totally blanked it, but that's all right. Well, that's how we have the edit button. <laughs>
0: One of the more hazardous um, is, elements too Corey um, with first responders is mm-hmm. that because they're out in the community, the exposures to covid you know skyrocketed, mm-hmm. not to mention they could be placing lines or giving injections while they're in a moving vehicle. so you yeah. have these um kind of catalytic events that increase risk exponentially for Um, first responders out in the community or in transit that you wouldn't have in a more um, still environment that you know might be a patient room Mm -hmm.
2: that uh, I think the PPE required during COVID also contributed as glasses fog up when you're wearing a mask and you might have you know something over your eyes that you're not used to having there I did read somewhere that the gloves seem to protect against sharp injuries but It would seem to me that there would be some feel different uh, with the gloves. So I think most people are now trained using gloves uh, when they're doing
1: insertion
2: of IVs. um, So that's a really, really
0: good point. People don't think about double gloving really as a method to reduce a sharp injury. But you're right, it serves as a physical barrier. So if that needle Mm -hmm. gets through the first layer of the glove, the second layer of the glove you know, acts as kind of a barrier to less mm-hmm. blood volume, which then means less viral load. So mm-hmm. that's, what and I um, AORN and, and other surgical um, professional groups do have guidance on double gloving. It's a really important point that you bring up about glove use.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, the interesting thing about the PPE that I've always thought is, you know, I, I used to get a lot of calls from, from different manufacturers and vendors and whatnot. And some of them understood healthcare a little more than others. And every now and then I would I would just tell them straight up, I'd say, well, you know, what we really need is, you know, we need gloves that'll reliably protect against a needle stick or a sharps injury. And every now and then somebody would they'd tell me, well, we have these that are, you know, completely puncture resistant or uh, puncture proof. And they would mail me a, a sample pair and, then it becomes the other factor there is, you know, it it, it may be much more effective at, you know, uh, preventing or, or mitigating a puncture, but it's still got to get through all the different, you know, quality and in, infection control um, parameters and everything. So it's not necessarily the same kind of thing as, you know, just... Um, the same thing if they're if they're trying to protect somebody from getting their hands burned in a factory or whatnot, there's there's a lot more variables involved.
0: So. I think um I think it's important, Dr. Yule, you brought this up earlier too about downstream injuries. So um we and glove use so this ties into both of your mm-hmm. points um is that about a quarter every year about a quarter of injuries are happening to the non-user and these are for sharps injuries so that means environmental services that means waste haulers that means operations that means somebody Mm -hmm. that's on the team dr yule you mentioned earlier that um, people who are in the room or at the bedside um, may be doing a mini timeout hey i'm just stop what you're doing Mm -hmm. i'm going to give an injection so that you don't inadvertently um stick somebody that is standing right next to you but Related to glove use, Corey, um, I think that there's a photo that I love, that I always show, and maybe I can send it to you and you can post it with this podcast, but Earl Dodder, if you haven't seen his work, he's been capturing images of workers uh, across industries, coal miners, um, steel erectors, healthcare workers, agriculture, farming, fishing, um, for years and years and years. And there's a picture that I like to use. It's of two laundry workers. They're linen and laundry workers. I think they're from the Brooklyn Central Laundry in New York. Um, and they are showing the sharps that were left in the linen in the hospital linen. So they have them in their hands. And one of them, one of them, I don't remember exactly what gloves they're wearing, but I think one is wearing non-slip gloves, like gardening gloves with the little non-slip surfaces on to your point corey that just simply wearing gloves puncture resistant or non-slip or nitrile or latex you have to match the glove to the risk it's really um, really an important factor that showed up for me in that picture i thought well these canvas gloves with the non-slick surface might be good for managing laundry or for grabbing things but offers little to no protection for um, a scalpel blade being left in a sheet or something
1: like that. Definitely, definitely, that's, that that risk assessment is important. Um, and you actually, it just came back to me there is um, what I was thinking about earlier with the EMS as well as, you know, I, I do a lot of work in the in the public health arena, but then also with 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 the entire city, I, I work particularly on chemical biological radiological nuclear and explosive hazards and it's interesting is when people think about that they always say you know oh we're talking about biological hazards and they their mind immediately goes to biological warfare agents like anthrax or ricin or whatnot and i always have to remind them that you know if i'm doing an analysis of um biological hazard exposures in the last year of course in the last couple years you know uh, the vast majority of those are going to be airborne transmitted disease exposures, but we've got a lot of things that are coming from body fluid exposures, bloodborne pathogens, and it's not only with EMS from like we were talking about there with things like sharps and needle sticks and bloodborne pathogen uh, splashes or body fluid splashes, but we have a lot of situations, you know, with police officers will go to that um, they'll go to arrest a suspect and they'll have a, a needle in their pocket you know, and they'll get stuck with that, or um, there's a lot of people getting spit on. Um, there's a lot of times they'll they'll get cut with uh, a suspect's knife or something of that nature, and and I always find myself re-articulating that to people is that, you know, we, we have to look at those as biohazards, just the same as a physical injury, because there's a potential for, um, you know, any kind of any kind of pathogen transmission there. So. You know, those points are actually you know um, absolutely uh, very important there
0: and corey one thing to add um, i I'm taken away from all the great questions you have, but this organic conversation no, is so so good um, yep. I'm looking at our twenty twenty one epinet data right now um more than sixty percent of all body fluids are contamin- visibly contaminated with blood, so the point that you bring up about people may not think of saliva and urine as transmitting blood-worn pathogens or infectious diseases but if there's visible blood and most sick people are have visibly contaminated saliva meaning their gums are compromised or there's blood in the urine Um, so even body fluids that you may think are innocuous that are potentially um, contaminated with with blood that's visible meaning it is pink or red um, you know, mm-hmm. the risks just increase exponentially for especially the mucocutaneous exposures to the eyes, nose, and mouth, where that bloodborne pathogen or the infectious pathogen or the microorganism is being um, exposed directly into uh, someone else's mucosa. And that happens a lot mm-hmm. just like you said out out in the community.
2: Mm-hmm. And to those points, mm-hmm. I'd say uh, mm-hmm. let's remember the labor and delivery units. postpartum units because there's a lot of blood in those situations and a lot of opportunity for for not only exposing healthcare workers but the babies and the moms and the family Mm -hmm. members that are coming to visit the other point i wanted Mm -hmm. to respond to corey made um, about public health sticks can also occur in the homes and so from a nursing perspective when we're treating someone with diabetes or they're going to be doing injections at home, we have to train them on how, safe, how to safely dispose of those needles so that mm-hmm. people uh, in the home or in the public aren't exposed. I mean, we even see in the airports, I've seen, you know, the sharp containers for disposal and just teaching people to look for that and even having them available for their homes so that we don't get mm-hmm. family exposure.
0: We used There used to be a safe disposal coalition that was run by diabetes educators and a couple of medical device companies and some insulin companies. I'd love to see that those efforts come back. People get confused when they say, put them in a, in a Coke or Pepsi bottle or a Sprite bottle and then cover it and tape it. And then they think, oh my gosh, there's the recycle symbol on there. So do I put it in the recycle stream? Do I put it in the trash stream? So wow. We've had... When I was at, at the Ocean National Office, there were actually inspections where these um containers, soda containers full of sharps, would go through the recycling process, like at the recycling facility, and get caught in the machining, and you'd have sharps that would go out almost like shrapnel. So it's a really important issue about sharps disposal in the community. Um, we think about it mostly in healthcare facilities, but in in parks and public spaces, I grew mm-hmm. up on Long Island. We had a um, medical waste coming up on mm-hmm. on the shores of Long Island when I was a kid. So it's r- really critical to incorporate bloodborne exposures in a broader public health sense for those reasons.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, those great great points. Which that actually all kind of takes us into the 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 bulk of this discussion, which is prevention. So, of course, as we go down the hierarchy of controls, you know, the first question there is what, if there's anything we can do to, to eliminate the hazard, you know, and of course, short of the, the needle or the sharp not being necessary anymore, um, elimination's difficult, you know, difficult to ascertain. Have you all ever seen any opportunities to, to completely eliminate
2: a needle or, or a sharp out of use? not totally, but I think we're seeing a reduction in at least intramuscular and subcutaneous injections in the hospital. You still have the IV injections, which are are more common now, but um, you have a little bit more chance, perhaps, of not getting stuck using the IV tubing, which doesn't move or twitch um, than you do if you're having to actually inject the patient. So other than reducing the amount of intramuscular and sub-q and whatever type of injections uh, i don't know that i've seen anything else to eliminate that need and that maybe they have come up with some iv connections that are not needle you know the needless connections now that are helpful
0: yeah that's i would that would be my lead um would be the needleless needleless connectors Mm-hmm. Um, which were required and actually specified in the 2000 Needlestick Safety and Prevention Act, which was mm-hmm. incorporated into the 20, um, 2001 OSHA of, uh, edited version of the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard. So, needleless connectors are a great example, um, not spiking IV bags, so not mm-hmm. doing processes that introduce a needle where there shouldn't have been one in the first place. Um, And then what I mentioned earlier, which is skin closure, there are a bunch of different technologies Mm -hmm. for Mm suture-free skin closure, uh, zipper closures, adhesives, Um, staples are still sharp, but at least you have an engineered control. You know, it's not hand use, it's more mechanistic, I guess that would be more of an engineering control. But that substitution element, yeah, I I mean, Mm -hmm. just assessing, you're using a needle during this process, did you really have to? There used to be some development abreast um, in the medical device community using uh, micro needle patches for drug delivery or patches for drug mm-hmm. delivery, localized pain mm-hmm. management instead of using needles. So I think mm-hmm. the patch technology is still a viable one um, and is being more frequently used. People are seeing some skin um, irritation with the adhesives. So that might be part of an issue whether you compromise the healthcare worker safety for patient irritation. But these are really important issues. I wish medical device mm-hmm. manufacturers and distributors would be um, more uh, interactive and more cooperative mm-hmm. with our community of people that are actually um, working in occupational health and safety and the clinical communities.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting y'all, y'all's comments brought to mind a couple of conversations I've had over the years where I remember one of them we were in a in a um I was going to say a safety committee but I think it was a patient safety filter and somebody made a comment they said you know I feel like there's an elevated use of sharps because the public perception for whatever reason, you know, I won't get into that but they said for for whatever reason over the years the the public has developed this perception that they're going to come into the emergency department and they're going to get something shot into them you know whether it's with a, an iv or some other kind of injection or whatnot and they said you know if, if if we you know reduced even half of that it would be so many so many less potential exposures to, to sharps um mm-hmm. it's, it's it's interesting because i thought about that myself and i went there, i've been in the er a lot of times in my life unfortunately and um it's usually the kind of thing where within the first five minutes you know of being being put into a room they've 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 got a needle in you you know so uh, of course i can't speak for the the nursing or the the physician side of it but it's definitely there's definitely a lot of exposure there um so to y'all's point if there was a way to mitigate that i think one
0: uh, um one other mm -hmm. thing is um in eliminating needle use even though a needle is required, so Corey gave the example, showing up in emergency department, they're likely to place an IV right away, Mm -hmm. Um, is that having reliable technology now, like vein finders, where it's they still have to use a needle, but they're just gonna use the needle the one time. I'm a breast cancer survivor. Um, I Mm -hmm. have terrible, terrible veins. So when I go in for my MRI, annually where they do um, contrast. The stick is very difficult and uh, almost Mm -hmm. never in 15 years have they ever gotten my vein on the first try. So I think one way to eliminate needles is to just have that one stick the one time Mm -hmm. because you amplify the risk if you need to do additional especially for for finding veins where it's difficult among a certain patient population, oncology patients, um, older patients, younger patients, neonates, that kind of stuff.
2: Great point. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, but yeah, to y'all's point though, that kind of brings us into the next thing there, which is substitution. So of course, you know, like we said, there's plenty of plenty of situations where the needle in the sharp is definitely needed. Um and so that gets us into the question of is there is there a safer way to do it? So of course, there's options out there. You know, there's situations where there's uh, blunt tip devices or there's there's other options in the in the OR, um, things of that nature. Um, what, what are some things that y'all have seen in that regard as far as alternative devices?
0: i always get confused when you ask me this question um because you think you think normally about substituting out when i think about substitution and this is in a similar sense substituting out mm-hmm. a more hazardous chemical for a less so like orthosaldehyde for glutaraldehyde, or yeah. hydrogen peroxide for ethylene oxide that kind of stuff uh, yeah. Which also plays into this space because we haven't even begun to talk about the risks to bloodborne and infectious diseases in sterile processing and central supply, which is astronomical, yeah. mm-hmm. um, lots of volumes of water cleaning medical and surgical devices and surgical instruments and endoscopes and all kinds of stuff um when i think about substitution substituting out a hazard in this space it's difficult to draw a line in the sand between what is an engineering control and what is substitution
1: so right right right?
0: so that's why i think for typical industrial hygiene in this sense it, it the lines do get a little bit blurred um so if an engineering control reduces a hazard but the hazard is still there so for example uh, a scalpel blade with a sharps injury deven- uh, prevention feature. That's kind of an engineering control. S- uh, zipper closures instead of sutures for skin, is that a substitution or is that an engineering control? So these are all philosophical yeah. things I always struggle with when I have these conversations with you.
2: Well, I'll yep. throw another one in the mix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We used to have mm-hmm. IV teams, and so we substituted who did. The sharps, particularly with IV insertion, and you had a bunch of specialists that were trained and expert at it. And so you didn't have the new nurse or the Mm. inexperienced nurse trying to learn it unless they were really in a controlled training program. But I suspect that expensive cost has gone the wayside. Plus, you need the nurses for staffing right now versus um, being on a specialty team like that.
0: And 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 mm-hmm. a shout out to the angels that are just highly talented vein finders that are mm-hmm. phlebotomists and med techs, right? You're absolutely yeah. right. When you have a seasoned expert that knows how to have laser focus on that tiny little vein, um, it's just a wonder, right? Those expert teams, right. I think phlebotomists, mm-hmm. IV teams and phlebotomists are a perfect example of that kind of skill set
2: and knowing exactly which Mm -hmm. size of instrument to pick makes a big difference. And that expertise is hitting retirement age Mm -hmm. in big ways. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. well,
0: so this might be another element for substitution, which which is brilliant that you just said that, because do you have the right needle for the right patient? Um, mm-hmm. so we see a lot of bilateral needle stick injuries, so people have to are pinching the skin to get the needle to go to the surface it needs i m or sub q whatever it is. they may have the wrong needle, they may have the wrong size, they may have the wrong gauge, so this is important for institutions to make sure during that risk assessment that they have the right size needle so you can't make the wrong choice right. And not, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know whether that's an administrative control, <laughs> um, but it's a great way to substitute out an injury for not having an injury.
1: hmm Yeah, that's awesome. Um it's it's getting on one fifteen and it's a great conversation. Um would y'all be okay if we take a break and come back at one thirty? Sure. Do y'all have time for that? Um, I do.
0: Yeah um yes i can do it
1: okay awesome i just got to give this briefing and um so yeah let's let's break for 15 then we'll come back and and finish out okay cool thank y'all i'll leave
2: it on i appreciate it okay
1: This conference will now be recorded. All right, awesome. Well, cool. So to kind of segue into the next thing, so we've been talking about the hierarchy of controls. So we talked about prevention with any potentials for elimination and substitution, which is kind of an interesting thing because substitution involves, in this case, potentially changing the device, which may very well lead us over into the next area, which is your engineering controls. And then like Dr. Yule was discussing there, substitution can also take place with um, substituting somebody who has maybe a higher level of training or a higher level of experience to do something with a potentially hazardous needle or sharp. And I know that's something we also looked at a lot with COVID-19 was substituting the location. So if we used an outdoor location for an operation, then we have natural ventilation instead of having to you know, try to get everything into the limited negative pressure rooms or or wherever we have. So there's a lot of opportunity there, and that's definitely great expertise. So with engineering, this kind of is where we get into a lot of the bulk of needle stick and and sharps injury prevention, because we can have retractable devices, we can have the the safety latches that go on the needles, all different kinds of different options there. So I'm going to kind of pass it to y'all now and I'm I'm interested to hear all the different things y'all have seen. Um, y'all can um just jump right in. Let's let, let's see what what have what have y'all seen as far as different engineering controls.
0: Um I mentioned a couple earlier. I think um for engineering controls for sutures, of course there are blunt tip sutures. There are all sorts of mm-hmm. other devices that reduce the suture injuries like staples and whether zipper closures or adhesives are are substitution or elimination um there's still items that have been engineered to be safer for those reasons um, for uh for scalpel blades, there are cautery devices or there are all kinds of other mm-hmm. elements um laser cutters, all sorts of other elements I mean they could still. Be hazardous, but you think about more of the the reduction of the downstream injury if that scalpel blade isn't also in the waste stream because that cutting is being done right at the at the surgical site. Um, for and for retractable not just retractable needles for skin injection, but also for blood collection, there's push-button retracting butterfly devices. There are butterfly devices that have retra- um, sheaths that go over the needle. Um, I will say with a lot of the engineering controls that I've seen, um, according to our EpiNet data anyway, when when EpiNet will ask, or when an employee health nurse will say, will ask the employee that was injured, what was the device causing the injury? Did the device have a safety design, yes or no? And if it did, was the safety feature activated, yes or no? So the the data, To me always presents a bad news which is um, I'm looking at the data right now 28% of people say that they were using a device that had a safety design when they were injured which could be good or bad it could mean that it's 28% which is good because safety devices shouldn't be causing injuries you could also take it that Oh shoot that's really bad because only 28% of people are using safety devices so whichever way you you cut it um, but if yes 66% of the time they did not activate that safety feature so this goes back Corey to what you were talking about earlier which with glove use and the applicability of the glove being right for the hazard is you can have an engineering control in place, and if it still relies on a human or a user to activate that feature, there needs to be a lot of other elements. There needs to be training and education. The OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard requires that frontline non-managerial employees evaluate um, engineering controls, and then that's incorporated into the exposure control plan. So it's not just okay to substitute out a non-safety for Mm -hmm. safety or a Mm non-engineered, control for an engineered control there are so many other human elements that go into um the overall safety the system safety that you yeah. like to talk a lot about for instituting new devices
2: mm mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. well, and, and following up yeah. on that i think to yeah. the training program and then the monitoring and reinforcement of the training uh, to develop the habits if you will so that you know it's just like i don't think about walking Even though I may look for areas on the sidewalk where I could stumble and I'm careful going over those, I get in the habit of where those are on my walk. So it's more common to avoid them. And so we want people to know those hazards and then get into the habit of using the right equipment and preventing exposure to injury. And so it's uh, Mm -hmm. the training is real important, the follow up, the accountability the reinforcement of that learning uh, is equally important to develop the good habits that we want developed. And I don't um, mean habits where you're not thinking. I mean habits like skill, where you get very skilled at doing something uh, becomes yeah. a part of who you are.
0: I love that example yeah. of the sidewalk. I'm going to steal it from you and okay. use it. <laughs>
2: awesome. It's a
0: really good one. Uh, you just know your surroundings. Um, one mm-hmm. One other element I'm thinking about, which is more atypical or less traditional relative to engineering controls is um is sterile processing so and this isn't sterile because endoscopes are high level disinfected but endoscope reprocessing for example and there are endoscope cleaners and reprocessors that replace the need to manually clean an endoscope so if you think about a long tube that goes into a body all of the channels in that tube need to be cleaned, and it takes or it needs a really long kind of um, pipe cleaner looking thing that goes in and out, which is also all kinds of repetitive motion um, injuries that happen with people that are cleaning endoscopes. But as another way to think about reducing biological exposures to workers is using um mechanized or engineering controls that are true machines that do processes that make it more consistent, more effective, and are more of a physical barrier for those types of exposures, like an -hmm. an endoscope cleaner and a processor.
1: Great. Yeah, that's definitely a great input. It's one of those things, to y'all's point, as far as education, that's one of the things that I've always looked at myself is that we definitely want to make sure that, you know, all of the providers that are the end users of the devices, you know, they understand all the different um, safety features and the procedures and the safe work practices. But then it's also important we want to educate the people that are on the back end that are actually doing the purchasing. Especially if there's a um, mm-hmm. any any kind of gap between the end user and the purchasing. Especially if there's like um, um, like materials management or central supply, or or uh, like ICS logistics or anything like that, where they're, they're looking, they say, okay, we have these product specs, so we're going to take this information, we're going to go buy this thing. And if the product specs don't designate what safety features they need, or any particular product numbers or anything like that, there's a chance they'll get something that isn't necessarily controlling the hazard. And I know we had one situation where some things had come down from the federal government. And, you know, in a lot of cases, they'll send what they have available. And they say, well, here's, here's, this will get the job done. Take it and go forth. But, um, you know, none of them had any safety features on them. It was just, just a ba- very basic syringe. And so thankfully, we were able to get those traded out for retractable devices. So that worked out well because they served the purpose we need them to with the safety feature on there. But, um, in some cases, if we can't ever assume that the people doing the purchasing have the same knowledge of the of the devices, so always interesting there. That's great input. The other thing I always like to say there is when you have the devices themselves, just like a car. You know, these days cars have backup cameras and they have lane change sensors and all things that beep at you while you're driving, and one that even tells if you're starting to fall asleep, it'll yell at you. Um, Tell you when it's time to pull over and drink a cup of coffee, or you know, all different things on there. So when we teach defensive driving, we always remind people that all of those features aren't substitutes for safe driving. You know, you don't want to mm-hmm. just randomly change lanes <laughs> without looking, and you know, without blind spot checks. You don't want to speed. You don't want to back up without checking, because all those features in the world, you know, it'll it'll beep at you all day, but it won't stop the car, or it won't you know move out of the way of a of a hazard. So same kind of thing with engineering controls is that, you know, we still want people to, and like Dr. Yule was discussing there a minute ago, is we want people to understand the safe work practices so that that becomes part of their work practices. Um, I just, that was redundant, wasn't it? That becomes part of their, um, part of their norm, so to speak, part of the culture. And so that kind of gets us into the engineering control, I'm sorry, excuse me, administrative controls, which are the the processes that we follow. So in this case, I know there's a lot of things that I've seen in the past, um, ranging from like verbal cues, you know, things like people, um, you know, express telling everybody, you know, I'm holding a dirty sharp, you know, or, um, or in some cases, I've seen situations where people will, um, they'll actually, um, they'll hold the sharp um, up over their head as they walk it to the disposal bin. Or of course, there's also, of course, the very reliable procedures of having a neutral zone and a safe zone and all that good stuff. So I was curious about y'all's thoughts as far as administrative controls, um, when they're used to supplement engineering controls or administrative controls that are um, self-sustainable as far as preventative measures. Um, What are y'all's thoughts about administrative controls?
0: Uh, Dr. Yule mentioned really great ones earlier in the team The team approaches, so staffing, mm-hmm. where you have um, expert users that are more likely to have less injuries because they do um, things more consistently. Um, and you, you brought up an excellent one, too. Um, if you're holding the SHARP above your head to walk to the SHARP's container, the best administrative control is assessing whether you've put the SHARP's container in the right place in the first place. Yeah. Um, so yeah. NIOSH has some great guidance for the placement of sharps disposal um, sharps disposal containers. Doctor Yule mentioned one earlier too, which is which is staffing and timing and tiredness um, and exhaustion. I'm, I hate. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I'm not the useful kind of doctor anyway. Are um, 12-hour shifts really the right way to staff healthcare? Um, I think another great administrative control from a larger sense about how healthcare is organized is you see more specialty places popping up. I talked about endoscopy earlier. Endoscopy centers, MRI centers, ultrasound centers, venous access centers, um, chemo centers, dialysis centers. Is that specialized healthcare better than having a more centralized healthcare where um, there are so many things going on at one time, it's really difficult to to keep track. So, I like to think about administrative controls kind of higher up, which, in the institutional control sense, have we really designed healthcare to be um, successful for ultimate safety of healthcare workers in a broader sense, not just at the person level, but at the at the structure level.
2: And that's a great point. Yeah. And I think um, Dr. Mitchell too the the Thing we need to consider with the specialty centers are they as regulated as the hospital is uh, so are they forced to do the safety controls by other regulatory bo- bodies uh, so that there's appropriate administrative control initiated by them and not just being money collectors for doing the mm-hmm. procedure so.
0: and Because that's the other thing you give up, right, which is the experiences that you and Corey had working in a really large health system, Mm -hmm. which is you also have the benefit of having professionals that do this for a living, where specialty centers could be a corporate specialty center with 50 different, you know, outpatient facilities all throughout the Houston Mm -hmm. area with one safety person that can't
2: logistically
0: drive everywhere. So that's another thing you give up for sure. Mm
2: And in nursing education, we mm-hmm. look at the quality and safety education for nursing, or we call it CUSIN. And one of their competencies is collaboration and the other one teamwork. So having collaborative relationships in the environment is important. Um, so you feel comfortable when you need to say, you know, you need a timeout here where you have a, a sense of relationship that I can call a timeout no matter who I am yeah. uh, or say, I need you to step back. I need to be focused on what I'm doing right now. And so you kind of ask people gently to leave you alone when you're um, having to do a procedure that could be hazardous.
0: I think another that brings mm-hmm. up another good example, um, which really is, is in a sense what some of the Veterans Health Administration acute care facilities are doing, which is um, doing cross-training across professional groups. So when you mm-hmm. hire on new employees, you have an environmental services worker that is with a surgeon, that is with a biller, that is with a sterile processing tech, that is with a nurse. They're onboarding together, and even throughout their career. I know it sounds weird. We'd hate to, to parse apart and bring them back together, prof- different professional groups, because the skills and talents and experiences are, are so different. but. Having a surgeon hear what an environmental services worker is struggling with from a downstream point of view, you send this instrument to my sterile processing unit, and these are the things I need to think about for safety, is having more of those cross-functional training, evaluation, sharing opportunities where different professional groups can listen to their pain
2: points. And the American Mm -hmm. Nurses Association has just in 2021 published the essentials of nursing education and interprofessional education one of the competencies we're supposed to develop in in our nursing programs. So um, it's a challenge when you're not associated with a medical school or you Mm -hmm. don't, you know, the associate degree or the community colleges often have. Uh, respiratory therapy and PT and phlebotomy programs so you've got a chance there but if you've just got one or two nursing programs um, you have to be a little more creative about how you do that interprofessional uh, education. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think I wanted to ask you this question from a nursing point of view too. Um, I just know having come out of the University of Texas School of Public Health, which is right next door to the School of Nursing, Mm -hmm. Um, that are are even the right motivators in place for advanced practice nurses to become university professors where they're then teaching so do we even have the right motivational or revenue or pay structure in place where really seasoned clinical professionals are then teaching new ones and the pay is compensable to you know if they were a, a star OR nurse manager in a successful surgical arena going back to teach nursing students?
2: Yeah, well, you hit on a very sensitive spot. No, the salaries are not competitive at all. And uh, so it does make it very difficult to hire nurse faculty that are actually very active in practice and are willing to take on education. I mean, they might be preceptors Uh, for particularly nurse practitioner programs, things like that. But um, it's hard to get them to commit to full-time faculty work. And then in some institutions, the faculty work is only for nine months. And so they go away for three months, and then you spend the first semester getting back into the swing of things, Mm. so to speak, in education. Uh, And, again, that's part of why the salary is low is because it, it. they may be nine-month appointments. Now, many schools have 12-month appointments, which is good? And many schools allow um, practice days so that nurses can keep their expertise in their fields as they teach. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges we have in the greater Houston area is that several years ago, an organization received a big grant from CMS to pay preceptors for nurse practitioners, nurse practitioner students. and Now that that grant's gone away and done, the preceptors out there still expect pay, but there's not a system to provide that anymore. So schools are challenged with finding preceptors for their students. And in addition, Mm -hmm. the the greater Houston market seems to be flooded with nurse practitioners right now. It's hard for new grads to find jobs out there, frankly. Uh, At least that's what our students are reporting.
0: And I think I think that's it. it yeah. It's important to say too for for those people listening who are not from the greater Houston areas that we have the largest medical center in the world. Yeah, you can't even imagine how these risks are ex- exacerbated. And I worked for the Indian Health Service a little while Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in um, South Dakota and rural health uh, public health service Mm -hmm. indian health service rural health providers um, even even a lot of suburban where you have factions of healthcare like memorial herman or methodist or hca or any organization kaiser that has organizations in so many different places different kinds of communities urban suburban and rural that Mm -hmm. also the, the practices and the risks are very very different even though the the process of providing care is the same, the resources that they have could be very different.
2: That's true. And the safety mm-hmm. education and focus may not be there in some of these areas. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's always interesting is the like you said, there the the level of of safety education or or even the culture. You know is um you know just just making sure that those 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 uh, fundamentals are there as far as the having the you know the the proper equipment the proper training the proper ppe inventory then making sure that people understand the expectations mm-hmm. and then actually seeing that in practice you know in the field and at least at least i've noticed in the you know however many years now i've been doing that it's eight just past 18 years strangely um is that i can often tell that usually if we see something that's unsafe happening it's it's usually that that started at the you know the very front of the line where either somebody didn't know that um, they, they either didn't know that that was required you know whether it's a regulation or whether it's a best practice they didn't know that that was you know the the way that things should be done or there was a difference in the perception of that hazard where there's there's situations where um i see it a lot with with things like airborne disease exposures where people will they'll do um you know very high risk work whether it's like ems or whether it's um whether it's an emergency department in, a, in an acute care hospital or whatnot. And in a lot of cases, they won't even put on a 95 respirator, you know, or like we were talking about earlier where they, they they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll use nitrile gloves, but um, a lot of cases, they'll forego the uh, eye protection or the face protection or whatnot. And so um, that's always kind of one of those things is, you know, how do, how do we, how do we build that, that culture so that it, it becomes so normal that it's it, it becomes abnormal to to bypass the, the safety controls. Yeah. But of course that's a you know question for the ages that we always keep working on. But conversations like today of course get down to the the specifics as far as how to implement those controls. So um, those are definitely definitely great points y'all make. Which kind of brings us to the the last of it. So the the bottom of the hierarchy, you know, we've we got the the potential for elimination. Then we got substitution. We got engineering. We got the administrative controls or the, the process controls. And then we got PPE. And of course, we've talked about PPE a little bit along the way with things like hand protection um, from splashes. You know, you've got your things like your nitrile gloves. Then you have got your eye protection. You've got your face shield. And of course, uh, your isolation gown. So all these things cover from liquids or from splashes or droplets, even. But needles and sharps, of course, there's there's not any kind of definitive control that's going to stop a needle stick absolutely. But we did talk about things like double gloving. So, what are y'all's thoughts as far as as far as a, an ideal or a or a best practice for for a PPE arrangement to prevent needle and sharps injuries?
0: um i well i think um i well sharps containers aren't really in that in that space because they aren't personal protective devices or equipment Mm -hmm. but they are kind of personal personal space protective equipment Mm -hmm. um i think absolutely i think it's important in this space especially as i was trying to process that question that we we've had this this dichotomous relationship between occupational health and safety and infection prevention and control, mm-hmm. that you you shouldn't ever separate out what a blood exposure is. Like from, a, from infection prevention and control, splash or splatter point of view or surface contamination and a sharps injury, to me, they should always have gone together, yeah. which is you yeah. think about just like you're saying, which we as industrial hygienists typically think about with a hierarchy of controls, which is that... When you can't engineer it out, when you can't subst- when you can't eliminate it, you can't substitute it, you can't engineer it out, then you think about PPE. But even for the process of using a sharp like a hypodermic syringes, I've seen so many people that don't that don't wear gloves. So they're thinking about all right, am I gonna protect myself from the patient? Or am I going to protect myself from the sharps injury? So I'll wear, I'll use a safety feature for the in- injection, but not wear gloves, or I'll wear gloves and then use a conventional non-safety device. So it's like the pro, it's like the systems aren't coming together when we think about it. So I wish that there were more focus on occupational infection prevention, or infection prevention is patient safety and worker safety both. So mm, it's really thinking yeah. about um, about those systems because, um when you're using sharp devices, so I'll give you the surgical environment as an example, there's a lot of high pressure, lots of volume of blood. If you're only focused on the sharp injury, like you're only focused on the cutting and you're not focused on what the cutting then does, which is release an artery full of blood or a cyst that's full of, um, a cyst that's full of, other types of bloody elements or mm. lymph or whatever is in that yeah. um, in that body part or in that during that surgical procedure, you have yeah. to think about the impact of one and then the other. So if this happens, am I also protecting my face? Am I also gowned? Do I have long sleeve gown on? Do I also have gloves on? Is there less of a gap between the gown and the glove? Um, you know, those types of things. So, you're right, it's difficult mm-hmm. to think about PPE for sharps prevention, but it's easier for me to think about PPE for overarching bloodborne uh, and infection prevention from an infectious disease point of view.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, I always look at it as a, I always use that as a window to reinforce the importance of optimizing the engineering and administrative controls. Is that you know? There's um, usually PPE is kind of used as a, um, as a as a as a stopgap. You know, it's like if like for example, if you're if you're working with a patient that has late stage Ebola, you're gonna be in the room with them. You know, so there's very few engineering controls, administrative controls. You have got your donning and doffing procedures and your contamination control zones, and your like you said, your bio waste disposal and your your um, Your uh, hazardous waste management but none of that changes the fact that you're right up close and personal with somebody who has who has late-stage Ebola you know in there a lot of body fluid and blood exposures there so um, the PPE is what's gonna keep that infectious blood and body fluid off of off the provider but with a needle and a sharp um, there's nothing that's gonna definitively stop the needle or sharp um, if it's a bad enough stick or 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 otherwise injury. So those engineering and administrative controls are are very important there, which drives the need for the culture to make sure people understand that importance. But um, yeah, great, great points. Um, Dr. Yule, do you have anything you want to add?
2: I I don't know that I have anything to add to that. In a perfect world, I guess we would have gloves and gowns and face shields that were impenetrable, but uh, (laughs) I'm not sure we could breathe or survive wearing those.
0: Yeah, breathing is right. important, right? And comfort. <laughs> if you're in a long procedure and you're in an oh. unbreathable gown, it's just it's torturous. And you mentioned earlier, Dr. Dr. Yule, the fogging of glasses. So right. um, that's with so many of us that need corrective eyeglasses mm-hmm. in addition to eye protection. Um, but I think I think COVID did us no favors with confusing people about what personal protective equipment is it is to protect oh, yeah. the user the worker from the thing it is not yeah. to protect the thing and i don't mean people are things but i mean the hazard from the person yeah. from the worker right. and you know mis- mishmashing of terms like face coverings and masks and surgical yeah. masks and respirators public health has done us no favors including you know yeah our own profession in the public health space on blurring a lot of the definitions of what ppe actually is so i think one of the things is just getting back to basics with with defining what it is supposed to do Um, so i'll tell you from our 2020 data to our 2021 data the most shocking thing to me is that during a mucocutaneous exposure so this is a splash or splatter to the face Um, 0% of people were wearing a respirator in 2020. 0% of people were wearing a respirator in 2021. It Um, went from zero to zero. Now, does that mean um, that people actually weren't wearing respirators or does that mean they didn't know they were wearing a respirator? They don't know the difference between a surgical mask and a respirator? So I'd love to see our, um, you know, our professional direction, especially protecting our greatest asset, healthcare workers around the world, is really getting back to some basics about what things are supposed to do and how, how we talk
1: about
2: mm. them. Yep. Well, that's yeah, quite definitely.
1: a thought. Yeah. Yeah, just that that fundamental difference between source control and respiratory protection, yes. you know, and PPE. Um, definitely important and to your point there you know if if there's an emphasis put on making sure that everybody understands how all this works and what the best practices are making sure they have those resources and making sure those expectations are set and then following through to make sure they do that that may have you know I'd like to think it does a viable impact on you know retention for like you said you know the assets the the human resources the people that are providing the healthcare so that'll stop the, you know, the, the, the great resignation of people moving on to different lines of work because mm-hmm. they just can't do it, yeah. can't take it. Um, it, it's, it's it, also, it.
0: It also leads, mm-hmm. you were talking earlier about CMS and Joint Commission and OSHA is, is incorporating training and education in the healthcare space about what regulations are. Um, what standards are. Joint Commission has standards, standards of care, environment of care. OSHA has global pathogens and hazard communication. And um, then CMS has requirements for licensure to receive Medicare and Medicaid. And EPA has a lot of fines for hazardous waste and chemical waste. So, not just, you know, tra- whether that's training our healthcare administrators, our healthcare leaders. A- because I can't tell you how many times I'm about to go um, supervise our OSHA COVID call center. How many times mm. people, even on the call center, say OSHA guidelines. Mm. OSHA has regulations. Yeah. They can provide yeah. guidance for things they don't have regulations for. But you know, I, yeah. to me, that that terminology matters. Yeah. Um, it matters for our leadership to communicate mm-hmm. what a regulation does. It is a legal requirement to do a thing. It is not a guideline. Yeah. And CDC guidelines are changing all the time because they're guidelines based on what's most current. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, this podcast is forcing me to think about just the broader sense of things, um, you know, not just at the facility level.
1: Yep, yeah, it's definitely very important. Fantastic discussion. There's a a lot of really, really good input so we certainly appreciate both of y'all for sure. I know that y'all have got things to do and places to go. So I don't, don't want to hold up your whole day. But um, as always, you have a open invitation for any of our, you know, any of our AOHP business. We, we certainly appreciate y'all. But um, we'll tie it up there for today. But for all those listening, if you haven't already checked it out, the podcast is at anchor.fm slash AOHP. And we are now up to, this is the 40th episode, we're the, the big 40, we're over the hill now. Um, and we got the national conference in September, uh, which is in Austin, Texas. So it's, uh, my my region too is, is representing and hosting and we got a fantastic amount of really great speakers, including Dr. Mitchell. And we hope that we can see you there. So if you're there, come by and say hello. But I know that they've, definitely got places to be, so we're gonna wrap it up, but um, we thank everybody and uh, Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Yule, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, thank you. Thank
0: you, Corey. Mm